Hi, everybody. Welcome to Two Off the First for today. It is Friday. It is February 24th, 2023. Happy birthday to my dad. It is his birthday today. Very happy for him. And we get to celebrate this weekend. But we've got Friday for you here on Two Off the First. We are presented by our friends at French Lake Resort in French Lake, Indiana. We have two stories, as the name of the show implies. One related to a new event coming to the PGA Tour that I'm very excited about. And we'll kind of touch on actually another new event that could be coming that we haven't talked about in the show already that I think is also going to be pretty cool. And then we have some, I guess, major championship news, some live news, although I, I don't think it really um, really means a whole lot. And then we'll talk about a ranking system very briefly that came up uh, in a different podcast that I did that you may be interested in checking out. We'll refer to that a little bit later. So let's start the show with the new PGA Tour event that's coming. I think we talked about this some um, in the fall when we talked about the idea of a team event between the LPGA and the PGA Tour, and it has finally manifested itself. It's very exciting. And so it came out, a uh, formal announcement. Uh, Grant Thornton is the sponsor of this tournament. It's basically going to be 16 teams, men and women together, and it's, it's going to be kind of like the old JCPenney Classic, if you are old enough to remember that. If you are not, it hasn't been around since like the 1990s, so I wouldn't wouldn't blame you for not knowing it. You may not have even been alive for it. But this event will still take place uh, in the Naples area. I think it's a $4 million purse, $5 million purse, somewhere in that range. And it's a multi-year agreement. Grant Thornton's been a proud partner that that label used to describe the Players' Championship sponsors. And so now they're, they're putting their name on this, which is it's very exciting. It's really cool to be able to have that. I think there's still going to be some more feedback to come on exactly the format and tees that they play from. Um, because when Nelly Corda has played in it, she's played from the same tees as the PGA Tour players. Well, now that you've got an even split of LPGA and PGA Tour players, I assume they're going to find a tee box that's agreeable uh, for all of the LPGA players to play from, and the PGA Tour players will play from a separate tee box. But that'll all be determined, and then there's other stuff with player input that is going to be coming out in the coming weeks and months, probably. It's It's very exciting to have this finally. And I think the really interesting part of the news release about this, which is typically not interesting at all, but just kind of gives you basic information. But in this case, it said precedent building event. Didn't say precedent setting. It's not a precedent center, but precedent building, meaning get used to the idea of having a PGA tour event and an LPGA tour event together, whether that's a team event, whether that's two events at the same time, whether that's one event, from different sets of tees, kind of like the Scandinavian Mixed event on the DP World Tour and Ladies European Tour. We don't know what that looks like, but I, I think the term precedent building is really important in communicating that this isn't where it stops. And that's a really encouraging piece to me, that there is a world where this could happen. For uh, an interview that airs on GNN Radio next week, we have Mike Flasky, who is the former head of Diamond Resorts and uh, he was the guy who founded the what is now the Hilton Grand Vacations Tournament of Champions on the LPGA. And I asked him, hey, do you see a world where there are co-sanctioned events between the PGA Tour and the LPGA Tour that aren't just these kind of challenge events that happen in the offseason? He said, absolutely, totally possible. Obviously, he has had the experience to show that it can be done and that it can be successful. He's done it more with a, a celebrity component involved, but I think he sees a world where you could have those two tours coming together in an event. And we've seen other examples of that, not only in the DP World Tour, but we've also seen that in Australia, on the Australasian PGA Tour. They've had 
uh, an event series called the WebEx Player Series the last several years. And that series has featured men and women in fields together, similar to what they've done with the Vic Open, more widespread. But they've had multiple female winners this year. They have multiple female winners in back-to-back weeks, actually. And then Hannah Green won uh, about a year ago as well. So they have seen some success with that. Women have proven that they can win in this format. And I think that is something that can be transferable to the PGA Tour and LPGA Tour. Do you find that right point on the schedule? When do you find that? I don't know. That's probably still to be determined. But I think there are some opportunities on the schedule. And the one that most people probably would look at is the Zurich Classic because it is also a team event. And knowing the world of designated tournaments now, it's kind of in an awkward place on the schedule because realistically, if you're going to have the, the really the portion of the West Coast swing that you have, if Phoenix stays or doesn't, but Genesis is certainly going to be a designated event. You're going to have Arnold Palmer Invitational be one. You're going to have the Players be one. You're going to have the Masters be one. You've got a good lead up of designated events. So it's going to be hard to position this team tournament as something that players have got to play, uh, especially the top players that get pit money. So how do you figure that out? Maybe you bring in the LPGA players, you split down the middle 80 and 80. Uh, you know, men and women, you make 80 different teams. That could be interesting. I, I, I don't know, but I would really like to see a legitimate individual event that's inclusive of the LPGA Tour and the PGA Tour. The, just the rub the LPGA Tour would get from that, from the better TV window, the better TV coverage, better media coverage. It, it just all would be a tremendous help, but also a great opportunity to showcase how great the players on the LPGA Tour are to an audience that might not otherwise tune in to watch them. And, and I think that's really the key place, re, key piece rather, for the LPGA is showcasing that talent in front of an audience that maybe isn't otherwise exposed to it. And you could even see it from the professionals who competed in the QBE, what is the QBE shootout or was the QBE shootout this year with Nelly playing. Well, they said, I mean, her swing is incredible. She's got tremendous power. It's something to behold. If they're impressed, then almost certainly PGA tour fans that might not otherwise watch the LPGA will be too. So I'm very excited about this It's a great development that it happened, and I'm looking forward to seeing it take shape. But that's in December. That's a long way from now. So hopefully we can find something in the coming years after going through this, maybe for a year or two, where the PGA Tour and the LPGA Tour can come together, common sponsor, common event. And again, it could be at the same time in two separate ones. It could be one with different tees. I don't know, but I think it's it's in the offing, and I think this is a, a big step in that direction. Also, some other news we haven't talked about in this show related to the PGA Tour schedule. It sounds like the PGA Tour is very close to having an event that will go to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, starting next May. And if you kind of read between the lines of the reporting in the Post Courier, which is in Charleston, that reporting seems to suggest this tournament is probably going to replace what is now known as the Mexico Open at Vedanta. That, that's just me reading into it. That That is not a formal report uh, on the matter. And, and I have some friends in the golf scene in Myrtle Beach, and, and they haven't really been able to give a, a whole lot of background on exactly where they would fall in the schedule or how that would all quite work out. But it's really exciting for people down in South Carolina. That, that part of the world is one of the fastest growing parts of the world, uh, certainly in the United States, in terms of people moving there permanently. Myrtle Beach has changed tremendously. It's a place I probably spend two, three weeks a year, every year with my family. And it's a, it's a meaningful thing for the Grand Strand to potentially have a PGA Tour event 
There are two or three really good venues. I think the Dunes Club, I think Barefoot Resort. Uh, you could probably go to TPC Myrtle Beach and do it as well, but you've got some options there that even if you wanted to make it a rotating thing, you you could do a really good job with the event, have a lot of people who are already kind of built in as spectators, whether they're people who are there for vacation or they're there and live permanently or, or what have you. But there's there's a big opportunity there. So it sounds like if you look at the schedule, right, and they say, oh, well, it's coming in May. And I, I know the Vedanta part of the schedule is in April right now, but they can move some things around uh, on the schedule and probably get this South Carolina event, this next South Carolina event, because you already have Heritage at Hilton Head Island, which is not that far away from Myrtle Beach, a couple hours. But if you bring in this event, then you create kind of a southeastern swing around the Masters, because you've got the Masters, you've got Louisiana for the team tournament, you've got Heritage, you, you would have this, you would have the Charlotte area for the Wells Fargo, because that's not going anywhere. And then you would kind of make your swing over to Texas a little bit around the PGA Championship where you would have the Nelson and Colonial, and then you would get into that that rush toward the U.S. Open. So I, I, that sounds like it's coming together. Uh, nothing finalized on that, but if they do come together on that, it's something going to be like a four-year, five-year agreement, and then they'll, they'll build it up as they go. And I think there'll be an understanding there that this isn't going to necessarily be a designated event every year, but... It could be one that is one of those tournaments that just kind of, as we talked about the other day on the show, has to exist on the schedule. That you need to have tournaments that are comfortable not always getting top 50 players or not getting a huge percentage of them, but that can serve a purpose for that community and for that sponsor. This is a great potential fit, and I think this is a, a win-win. So I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it. someone who spends a fair amount of time in Myrtle Beach. I'm excited about it. Uh, for my friends down there. So hopefully that that all kind of comes about and, and works out in the end. All right, second story today is live-related, but it's not ex- explicitly live-related. I mean, it sort of is, but major championship-related. And I think a lot of a lot was made of this news yesterday with the PGA of America announcing the criteria to qualify for the PGA Championship in 2023. They put that out there, and, and the majors do this kind of every year, but this year, the updates are always, or certainly have a, a heightened sense of attention to them because people wanted to see if any of the governing bodies behind the majors explicitly excluded live players from competing for whatever reason. And in way, they don't, none of them do so explicitly. If you qualify under the criteria, you get in. So none of them have said, hey, if you play on live, you can't play. Masters is fine with it. Hey, if you qualify, if you're a past champion, if you got in the top 50 in the world, those are really the two ways for live players to get in, get an invite. You're invited. You can come play. Same thing for the PGA Championship, which was the last to announce, even though it's the second major. And they said, look, if, if you qualify, you can play. The question mark is, can you qualify under the criteria? Because all of the criteria are slanted toward existing tours. And specifically toward the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour. And... They want to have the best players in the world, and they typically wind up bringing invitation criteria out to round up the field of the top 100. Well, does that mean all of the live players who are in the top 100 get an invite? Not necessarily, but they could meet the criteria, but they might not. So I I think there's some wiggle room in that statement, even though a lot of folks ran with, hey, live players could play all four majors. Yes, they can. And I, I think that was the game plan all along to create criteria that, Live players 
could conceptually satisfy, but not necessarily do very easily. I'll give you an example. So the Open Championship has the Open Qualifying Series. They have a series of, what, 10 tournaments, something like that, that run between different tours, PJ Tour, DP World Tour, Asian Tour, uh, Sunshine Tour, I believe, also ANZ. And, and so they have tournaments where if you finish, like, say, in the top three or top four of the top 12, and you're not already eligible to to play in the Open, you're not already exempt, then you get an exemption. It's a cool way of kind of spreading the brand and also making it really easy for players to qualify without having to go to the UK for final qualifying. Well, a bunch of those qualifying events are obviously on different tours, and the ones that are on the Asian tour, like the Korean Open, well, that's not an international series event, which means live players are unlikely to play it because they commit to playing the international series stuff, whatever part of that schedule they're doing. So it makes it more difficult. And then the way that they're going to have the schedule on live, it also makes it difficult to do the final qualifying. So if you're not already exempt, there's a really good chance you just don't pursue it whatsoever to go play the Open because most of these guys aren't going to want to do qualifying. They, they're just not going to want to do it. Same thing's true for the U.S. Open, by the way. If you are a player who's ranked in, what, the top 400 in the world or something like that, then you get through to the, the sectional level, the final level of qualifying. You don't have to do the local level, but do you want to do that? Do you want to do 36-hole qualifying if at one time you were easily exempt in this championship and you've got to come over to the United States and do it? And maybe that's not worth your time if you're an international player? I don't know. But there are some also tweaks in the criteria that are little digs at Lib. So, for example, for the players that qualify for the U.S. Open based on getting into the top 30 in the FedEx Cup. Well, you have to be in the top 30 eligible players. You can't just have been in the top 30 otherwise. So there, that's one part of it. And then moving forward, you have, you have that issue too. Same thing for the Open. They have a criteria, or did up until this year, where if you qualified for the President's Cup or Ryder Cup team, depending on the year, you got into the Open. It was a free exemption. Now, it was always a bad exemption, even before Liv. And it was a bad exemption because you had captain's picks. You had anywhere from a third to half the team, depending on the year, would get on based on what the captain thought. And that could be a fit, that could be a friend, that could be a favor, whatever it was. But that wasn't necessarily guaranteed against performance. It was just, hey, you got picked to the team. Congratulations, you get into the Open Championship. And that was a bad criteria for the best possible field that the Open could have from the RNA. So they cut out that criteria. And also probably doesn't hurt that over the last couple of cycles, there have been more captain's picks. One, because of COVID in the Ryder Cup. And then this last time for the President's Cup because of people leaving for live. Well, now some of those players who were on the International President's Cup team also went to live. So Mito Pereira and Sebastian Munoz, they both went and moved on. Well, that means now they're not eligible for the Open Championship through this criteria. So that, that has been closed. Now, Mito still gets in all four majors this year because he finished inside the top four at the PGA Championship. So he's getting into everything. But in future, this is going to take it away. So there's not going to necessarily be an incentive if Liv's still around to play in a team competition and then defect. So the, I, I think they also wanted to kind of take that out of it, take out the incentive to play in a competition like this for whatever reason and then walk away and that kind of be your marker almost, almost kind of like a senior bowl kind of thing like don't play in this if you're going to turn pro like just go skip it and go get ready for the nfl draft kind of similar concept working here with 
this exemption criteria. Like, look, you're not going to get into the majors because of being on this team anymore. So if you're going to go ahead and make that change, make that change and, and don't worry about the exemption criteria. You're going to have to figure out some other way. And I, I actually appreciate that. But it was interpreted, and I think fairly so, as a slant at some live players. But it also doesn't affect enough of them where you can go, oh, yeah, that's definitely a dig a live, at live. It's just like a mini dig, a little, little bit of a dig. And so that kind of segues uh, into the official World Golf Ranking and segues into something called the Sports Illustrated World Golf Ranking, which has been unveiled by the folks at Sports Illustrated. And uh, in transparency, a couple of years ago, I, I talked with them about bringing Golf News Net's website and platform over to theirs. Didn't work out. Uh, no, no hard feelings there whatsoever. And since then, they've brought on Morning Read, which they have then purchased and absorbed and made SI Golf. And, the, you know, it's doing its own thing now. And as part of that, they have, have done a fair amount of live coverage. Uh, they have a relationship, the parent company does, to Greg Norman's brand. So there is a kind of relationship with Live there. And they've created their own version of a world ranking system. And it feels like this is something that's increasingly come up because I've heard about the SI World Golf Ranking. I've heard about another one called the uh, the Universal, I think it is, Golf Ranking, which uh, has its own take on as a version of like the Sagarin rating, which is based on individual performance against other individuals, win-loss records, and I have my own sets of issues with that. But nevertheless, that, that system, those systems exist. And the, the SI system came out and it's been skewered. I mean, I did a long form 40 minute podcast. If, if you are interested in that kind of thing on the 19th hole golf show, explaining my issues with the ranking and, and what came up with it, but it boils down to a couple of different things. And some of it is obviously the natural business relationships that are at work here, right? I mean, the relationship between SI's parent company and authentic brands and Greg Norman's brand that creates a conflict of interest there. And then also, having the sponsor of that be LA golf and LA golf makes shafts and components and they started making golf balls. Well, two of their player ambassadors are live guys, Dustin Johnson and Bryson DeChambeau. And so they have somewhat of a commercial interest in their player owners being ranked and being ranked highly. So instead of citing the official world golf ranking, which doesn't give points to live, they can cite this SI world golf ranking, which does, which, by the way, does so over a rolling 12-month window instead of a 24-month window and also has a, a much more flattened system of relevance of players in the top parts of the world ranking relative to their worth of an event and uses this metric called distance per shot, which basically tries to take the distance of a golf course divided by a player's score, and that's their version of strokes gained, um, and that's, that's a series of problems unto itself. But... We now have a system where the official World Golf Ranking, and I think this is fair to say, doesn't really rank every player very well, but it also doesn't rank the players very well that are in live, specifically. So you're talking about 48 players. Well, many of those 48 players really aren't particularly pertinent to the official World Golf Ranking. And so do you kind of concoct a system? Do you have to upend a, a system? that you've already created and you just modified last summer, modify it again to account for a completely different brand of tournament golf that's 54 holes and has no cut. And I don't know that the official World Golf Ranking has an interest in doing that or has an imperative to do that, frankly. Uh, because you've got, you've got this international series, you've got the Asian tour. 
the the live players may be able to go compete on the DP World Tour, depending on what happens with an arbitration hearing that happened recently this month in the United Kingdom. So the system may still be able to work itself out, and you just kind of say, look, if you're playing playing in these live events, you, you just don't get anything. Uh, there's no value to the world ranking, but you can play in these other events. And meanwhile, this alternative system is kind of designed to try to prod the world golf ranking folks into to including live. And I, I don't think it's really going to do that. The, the OWGR folks, the board of the OWGR is the PGA Tour, the DP World Tour, and the people who run the mat, the Masters, the U.S. Open, the PGA, and the Open. They are perfectly comfortable using the system as it exists to identify players to qualify. And they would rather not use it at all than use another ranking system. And that's because they've lent this support to it for the long haul. And I don't think that's going anywhere. So for the the idea that there might be an alternative system to come out that can then be used to determine major championship fields and things like that, that's not coming. It, that that cavalry is not coming. So th- there's going to have to be some kind of reckoning at some point. And I, we've talked about this for more than a year now. At some point, does who blinks? Or does no one blink? And we just keep doing this for a while. And every time there's a major, we go, how many live guys qualified? But if you look at a, a spreadsheet of who was eligible for each major from live last year and who's eligible for it this year, it's like a third of them that were eligible are now eligible. It's like 10. So, and that's pretty much it. I think the the rest of the golf world is comfortable with that. You know, that is what it is. If you want a major, if you, if you got yourself into the top 50 in the world, some fashion, all right, then you're in, you, you earned your way, but the system is set up now that you've got to do something extraordinary. If you're on live to be able to earn a spot in the major championships. And maybe that's worth it for a nascent tour that again, plays a different brand of golf than a lot of folks have traditionally accepted as the right way to determine the best players in the world. That's going to do it for us today on two of the first. Thank you so much for watching or listening to the show. If you listen to us through a podcast platform, be great. If you give us a five-star review, leave a comment, helps us reach more people. If you're watching through YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. Give us a subscription. Helps us reach more people there as well. And if you're catching us any other way, hey, thanks for doing that. We appreciate your time each and every episode that you catch us uh, on two of the first. We'll be back on Monday. We'll have a review of the Honda Classic. We'll talk about the Honda LPJ Thailand, Hero Indian Open. We'll touch a little bit on what happens with Liv. And we'll bring it all together for you in a nice, convenient package starting on Monday. I'm Ryan Ballinger. Thank you for watching. We will talk to you next time on two of the first. Happy birthday, Dad. <laughs>